Therefore, Paul says, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to what? Stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That's all there is to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Peter comes along and says, you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. This armor is sufficient and it's efficient in the spiritual battles of everyday life. It is what we need to stand firm. In the winds of temptation, dear God, this is the armor that we need. This is the armor that you give. This is the armor that we have. This is the armor that we need, why we need to practice self-discipline. And to create good habits in our lives with this armor. To have it on and ready at all times. So, Father, I pray that you would, you, you, would, you would speak to us this morning through your written word, that you would encourage us, that you would exhort us, that, Father, our consciences would be molded, that we would take you at your word here and understand this is the armor to fight against an enemy we cannot see, an enemy that's located in heaven and on earth, but he's an enemy that's already been defeated because of the, the blood and the righteousness and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is doomed. The Lord God, you teach us this morning that he goes out swinging. But we can withhold, we can withstand because of the armor you give us. Teach us, dear God, what it is and give us the strength and power to put it on every day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Really, God, I want to walk through these verses this morning. I want to begin in verse 13. Kind of sets us up for the armor. 14 and 15 uh, describes for us the first three pieces of armor, and then 16 and 17, the, the last three, or the second pieces of armor. Uh, Paul begins in verse 13 with, therefore, based upon what he wrote in 10, 11, and 12, based upon the enemy, based upon the one in whom we have hand-to-hand combat, or the Greek where there's struggle with, we must take up the full armor of God. Notice it says full armor. Five pieces won't do it. There's six. You gotta have it all on. We are not to be incompletely dressed as soldiers. It's the whole outfit that is necessary. But then he goes on in verse three and tells us, so that, here's the purpose of the armor, so that we will be able to resist in the evil day. James four seven says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Nowhere does it say defeat him and he will flee from you. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. But resist him firm in your faith. That theme of resisting him. Think of yourself as being in Christ, planted, standing on him like an oak tree. And your roots are growing deeper and deeper and deeper. So when the storms of the wind and storms come of temptations, you're going to be stronger as an oak tree, right? Because they do come. Which leads us to the next phrase. I want you to look at this. In the evil day. 
in reference to the evil day. It refers to a season or time of special pressure or special temptation that we all face now and then. We all have those moments or we all have those days or we all have those weeks or we all have those relationships whereby we are more tempted to sin than others. I looked at this over and over and over again, and almost all commentators agree the evil uh, the evil day is more applicable to us in whatever that time or season or moment you might find yourself in where you're more tempted to sin than others. And we are to resist in the evil day. Wherein a believer faces this great turmoil or temptation or even failure. It could be a time where you really failed. And when you fail, it's not like Satan is like, oh, okay, I tempted you, you failed, I'm going away. No, when he tempts you and you fail, he tempts you again. Because he wants to tempt you after that failure with the thought of, well, maybe God's grace isn't so sufficient. He's relentless. And so he wants to create doubts after you fail. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, we all have those evil days. Let me just go to James chapter 1 and you can go there with me. I'm just going to be there for like one or two minutes. I want to kind of like give you an example of this evil day or, or the season of life or this time of life that we now and then find ourselves in. And it's, he begins in verse 2 of James chapter 1 by saying, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. He's not saying find joy in that trial itself. But you take joy in the fact that God providentially is, is, has that trial, trial in your life for a reason, for a purpose, and is to conform you into the image of Christ, is to strengthen your faith, is to produce a persevering faith. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith, what? Produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, he says, pray, pray, talk to God, ask for help, ask for wisdom, which God would love to generally give to his children when they ask him. In verse 6, we must ask in faith without any doubting. Don't doubt God when you ask him for something, particularly in this context, by the way. He's not asking for goods. He's not asking for money here. It's not about prosperity theology. It's about godliness. It's about wanting to honor Christ in this trial. It's about knowing that God has a reason for this test in my life. That test could be a disease. It could be a person. It could be anything. Various kinds, he says in verse 2. But I want to go on. I want to point out something for us. Look at verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under this trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So in verses 2 through 12, we see James tells us, he teaches, the word of God tells us that there are going to be trials in our lives. There's going to be testings. And they come in any way, shape, or form. It could be a form of a person. It could be an event. It could be a sickness. It could be financial. It could be emotional. It could be whatever. You name it. So the various kinds but then I want you to notice verse 13. Why would James have verse 13? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. When you are in that trial, 
what happens? The devil, you got to, here's, here you are, and here you have a trial. God uses the trial to test you as, as refining your faith, like refining of silver and gold to, to, to clean off the dirt and the dross of it, right? To refine it. Satan wants to use that same trial to ruin you. That's why there's verse 13. Cause you're going to be, he's going to use it to tempt you to sin. God's using it to develop your faith, to mature it, to grow it. Okay? I just wanted to show you that in James chapter 1, because I went there earlier on in my study this week and went to verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. And no one say when he is tempted, verse 13, I'm being tempted of God. Why would he say that? Because we're always tempted when a trial comes our way. We're tempted to walk away from it. We're tempted to handle it our way. We're tempted maybe, maybe if my obedience, for example, is resulting in suffering, well, I'll just kind of stop that obedience so that suffering will leave. Right? So, that kind of idea there. Let's, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6, our, our main text. You see, Paul's concern for the believer in verse 13 is for the believer's stability. A wobbly Christian is easy prey. A, a wobbly Christian is easy prey. A wobbly Christian is one who is not consistently putting on the armor. So Paul's concern here is for the stability of the believer, their, that their foothold is firmly in Christ. Maybe he has those in mind of chapter 4 of Ephesians verse 14 when he writes this as a result we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming he knows that's a temptation for us is to be wobblers to be easily tricked to be tossed by the waves of trials or false doctrine to carry it about by people and their scheming and so Paul's concern here in verse 13 is for the believer's stability. Now, it doesn't surprise us from after verse 13, you go into 14, 15, 16, and 17, that Paul is well versed in the area of the soldier's uniform. You go to verse 20 of chapter 6, for example, we know that he is in chains, for, I, for which I am an ambassador in change. Ch change. Chains. Excuse me. Paul is well versed. He's been surrounded by soldiers, guards, soldiers, those that are that have this uniform on. And so what he does from this point on in 14 through 17 is he compares the soldier's armor to what the Christian needs when he is to stand firm against the wiles and the corruption and the deceitfulness and the scheming of the devil himself. And these can be broken down into two categories. Category number one being what I call the basic long-term everyday gear of a soldier. That would be verses 14 and 15. Simply put, the truth, loins, gird your loins with the truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's category number one. I'll explain that in a minute. Category number two is what the soldier needs immediately before he goes into battle. And that's why he says, take up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Here it is. 
You've seen a picture where, like, like in the Revolutionary War or whatever, and you got the soldiers around the fire. They got their basic uniform on. But over on the side is the sword and their shield and their helmet. But they got the breastplate and they got everything else on, right? They got the thir- first three pieces on, okay? They got their long turb armor on, the basics, which we're going to look at in a minute. But once they see the enemy coming over the hill, they quickly grab their helmet and put it on. They pick up their shield and they take their sword. And now they're ready. Those are the last three pieces of equipment. You see that? I think that's what Paul took. And here's why I think that. Notice what it says in verse 16. In addition to all. In addition to the first three. You got to pick up these last three. When you see the enemy coming over the hill and you know the battle is inevitable and he's upon you, you've got to pick up the sword. You got to pick up the shield. You got to pick up the helmet. And I think also in the grammar, I won't go too deep in this, is also picking this up when he says this, having, okay, having girded your loins, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet, having put on the basics. When you see the enemy coming over the hill, pick up the other three and you're ready for battle. Let's talk about that. Let's look at the first three. Let's look at the first one of the first three. Gird your loins with the truth. This could either be truth in doctrine or truth in heart. Truth in doctrine or truth in heart. Verse 14, stand firm. How do we stand firm? Gird your loins with the truth. I believe he's talking about truth in heart. The reason I don't believe it's truth in doctrine is because of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That last one, the sword, is referring to sound doctrine, the Word of God. So here, I think he's talking about truth in heart, as in reference to speaking the truth, sincerity, and integrity. The first three are taught, he's talking about how we live. The first three pieces of armor is how we live the basic life, following Christ. And the number one, speak the truth. Be honest. Loins being the hindquarters, the thighs, lower body. And Psalm 51, 6, listen to this. David recognized that God desires truth in the inmost parts. Even in Ephesians 4, 15, we are to speak the truth in love. 4, 25, we are to lay aside falsehood, falsehood and speak truth with our neighbor now remember this is in the evil day that's the context verse 13 sets up the context resist the devil in the evil day and to stand firm what's that evil day maybe that day you're tempted not to be sincere with somebody maybe it's that day you're tempted to lie and not speak the truth now you see that make it more sense doesn't it when you are suffering for righteousness sake And you're tempted to lie and not be honest so that you don't get in trouble or get caught. The Word of God here, Paul is thinking, we need to be truth people. Speaking the truth. Being honest with one another. Be sincere. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness. He goes on to say, I'm having put on the breastplate of righteousness. There's two kinds of righteousness in the Bible. Okay, there's the perfect righteousness of Christ, his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, 
When, when you trust Christ, you're trusting in his obedience. You're trusting in his life. You're trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? You're trusting in his sacrifice. And the reason why the father raised him from the dead is because the son lived a perfect, sinless life. That is the righteousness we need to be just before a holy God. His, the, the theologians say it this way. His righteousness is imputed to us. It is a free gift. It's God's grace. He gives it to us. Boom. Set. Sealed. You're just before a holy God, even though you're struggling on everyday life here on earth. That's that first kind of right. The second kind is simply the believer's obedience. It's called practical righteousness. Jesus' perfect righteousness, that's the righteousness we need to get into heaven. Right? That's the righteousness that satisfied God's holiness. Meanwhile, we have that. We stand on that. It's been imputed to us. It's put to our account. Okay? But now, in everyday life, God's, God demands that we what? Walk practically in obedience to Him. That's practical righteousness. It's equivalent to our obedience to God. I believe Paul is thinking about the latter. He's thinking about our earthly obedience. So we're supposed to walk in obedience. That's what he has in mind when he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having walked in obedience in our marriage with our children at work, which he's been spelling out in chapter 5 and 6. Again, in the evil day, when the pressure of temptation faces you, when trials come and you're tempted to sin, your temptation to sin is enhanced. We might want to stop. Well, God, that employer doesn't deserve such good work from me because they're unfair, they're unkind. And so I'm going to kind of slough off on the job. But we read when we work, we work as unto the Lord and not our earthly employer. But the temptation is greater there when our employer treats us poorly. That's just, we're just being human here. We're just being honest. But we are to have that breastplate of righteousness. Let's go to number three, the gospel of peace. Notice what he says, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I really believe here that Paul is thinking about the peace we have with Christ. Look at Chapter 2 of Ephesians, 12 and 13, excuse me, 13 and 14. But now in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. I believe he's talking about peace with one another here. This is relational. This would be a relational. In the evil day when the winds of temptation are whirling around us, crashing in on us, when a relationship has gone sour or someone has said something that hurts my feelings, we've got to remember that Christ is our peace with one another. When you have a problem with somebody, with another believer in the body of Christ, which is the context of Ephesians, by the way, which is the context of chapter 2. And remember, you have a church in Ephesus who got this letter. So when they're interpreting chapter 6, we're hearing it read. I think they're really hearing it in reference to chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. They, they, they did not have all 27 books of the New Testament. They probably just, this is their first letter, okay? And so they're thinking this armor in relationship to what Paul had already written to them, Okay? Sometimes people are just different personalities and I don't get along with some personalities. Or maybe I get along well with others and not this. 
But God says, put all that down. Put all that aside. You love one another. Because you're at peace with one another. Because of Christ who is your peace. He is the peacemaker in the body of Christ. And he brings us all weird people together. The joke. Okay. Okay. It's true. Yeah. Oh, I love this. It's true. And all God's people said, Amen. Yes, we're weird. Okay. We all have our idiosyncrasies, idiosyncrasies. You know, we all have our differences. We all have our quirks, right? Yes. And the, and guess what? When we build relationships, we're going to see them a little bit more. You know, the closer you get in a relationship, the, the more you become, a, you more, it's like looking at someone through a microscope, you get to see the details. And the more you see the details, the more you go, ooh. It's kind of like when you get married. And my wife just said, that's enough. You get the idea. But it's the gospel of peace that glues us together, that keeps us together. Now, now these three pieces, these first three pieces, are the soldier's everyday clothing. It's how he should walk. Speaking the truth. Walking in obedience. Loving one another. Every day we must firm stand firm in sincerity of heart. Stand firm walking in obedience. Stand firm in loving one another. But there are three more pieces of armor that we need for when we see the enemy walking over the hill coming at us. And that's the three that I want to address now. Number one, the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Notice what it says. In addition to all, Take up. These we take up. Take up. There's more of an immediacy about them. Take them up. Okay? We're no longer in the uniform warming our hands. We now see the enemy coming over the hill, and now we got to take up real quick. Right? The shield of faith. And that explains what that will do. I love this. Which, will, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. What Paul had in mind here, at the end, the tip of an arrow, they would put it in some kind of black yucky stuff or tar or something, and they would put a flame on it, you know, and, and, and that's what he has in mind. It represents the devil's slanderous accusations. That's what those flaming arrows represent. After all, he is described in Revelation as, quote, the accuser of the brethren, end of quote. What does he accuse me of? Every time I fail girding my loins with the truth, every time I fail to put on the breastplate of righteousness, every time I fail to walk in the gospel of peace, it's an opportunity for Satan to accuse me. He is relentless. And he's looking, he's watching, he's walking around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you know when he's, you know he's going to attack? When we're at our weakest. You know when you're at your weakest? When you're in sin. And that's when it'll pounce. That's when it'll pounce. But that's when we're told to take up the shield of faith. Every time we fail in one of the first three areas of armor, not sincere, not walking in obedience, not standing in the peace of Christ, the devil is there to shoot a, a, a flame, an arrow at us. The arrow might be there to create doubt. How could you be a Christian and do something like that? How can you be in that kind of a sin pattern and still be a believer? You're wretched. God doesn't love you. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7 for a minute. 
turn back. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Chapter 7. I think we play, see this beautifully played out by Paul himself. In his, he's sharing his own personal experience, awakening to this principle that evil, sin, still dwells in him. The one who wants to do good because he is a child of God. This is the Apostle Paul sharing the inward desires that are going on inside his soul and the thoughts of his heart. And he sees in verse 14 of chapter 7 this, this conflict of these two natures, the one who wants to do well because he is a new creature in Christ, and yet he still finds himself struggling with sin. Go to verse 21. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. I'm a child of God. I want to please God. I want to do good for my father. But there's this principle that no matter where I go, no matter how hard I try, there's this presence, this principle of sin. He calls it evil. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me? I got to try harder. I got to sin less. Now we all have those thoughts in our mind, right? And they're not necessarily bad. But beloved, we don't live by works. We're saved by grace and we walk by grace. And though we want to sin less, that's not the key to sanctification. The key to sanctification is recognizing our wretchedness and turning to Jesus Christ and that He's already saved us. We're relying on Him and His righteousness. To have this thought that I want to do better and to stay there without Christ is to be legalistic. It's to rely on your own works. It's to rely on your own obedience to remain in Christ. Stop it, stop it, stop it. I've been there just as much, if not more than you at times. That's why Paul says, wretched man, who is going to set me free from the body of this death? As long as I'm in this body, he's saying, I'm, I, I'm, this evil, this sin is walking with me. I can't get rid of it. Look at verse 25. He, he gives the answer, praise God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's not praying for salvation here. He's dealing with everyday struggle against sin as a child of God. Here's it. Thank you, God. It's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the one that's going to set me free. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind, I'm serving the law of God. I love the law of God. I'm, I'm not under it anymore. It doesn't condemn me, right? But I still love it. It's God's rules for my good. And my obedience to his law pleases God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, it's serving the law of sin. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Forget chapter. Forget the chapter break there. It's probably one of the worst chapter breaks in all of Scripture. He continues on. Therefore, there is now. Now. What do you mean now? Now, in the context of chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, in the context of saying, I am a wretched man, he says what? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you fail, Satan is throwing darts at you. They're flaming darts of doubt. And you question, how can I be saved? He wants to get your mind off of Christ. But Paul's remedy, Paul's answer here is, you run to Christ, you don't run away from Him. You run to the one who you ran to the very first time. It's Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. There's no condemnation. Doubt, get out of my mind. 
I'm not saved because I've been a good per- a good Christian for the last month or two or a good Christian for the last year or two. I'm saved because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. I'm saved because of him. I'm justified because of him. Amen? Let's go on. The helmet of salvation. The helmet protects the head. The helmet protects the head. Usually, that, that fatal blow is the one that hits you in the head. Okay, if it doesn't get you, it, it decapac- you're decapacitated at that point, boom, you're done. But once you get, you know, once the head gets hit, that's it. This is the helmet of salvation. Here I believe the tack is not, is, 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 is on the believer. It's on his, it's on the gospel itself. Here's how I compare the, the, uh, excuse me, here's where I, let me get back to my passage, that would help. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, the shield of faith, the flaming arrows, the helmet of salvation. The shield of faith is referring to the believer's faith, whereas the helmet of salvation is referring to God's grace. Okay? The devil wants to create doubt in my mind towards my faith in Christ. That is verse 16, the shield of faith. When it comes to the helmet of salvation, he wants me to doubt God's grace. You see that? The helmet of salvation. Salvation. That's what Paul spelled out in chapter 1. That we are in Christ. We're saved by grace. In other words, here's here's a blow. How could Christ die for you? How could God love a person like you? You see, when it comes to the, the first one is like, Satan is like with these firing darts, just saying like, you really believe? You sincere, really? Really? Challenge you with doubts. And, but here he's more focused on you doubting God's grace. The helmet of salvation. How can I still sin like this and still be justified? Let me read a quote from a book by Joel Beakey. It's called Striving Against Satan. And this gentleman is one I learned. I went to his class a couple weeks ago. And this man has been reading the the, uh, Puritans for like 50 years. If if you're next to him, he's today's getting close to the Puritan as you can get. Okay. Let me let me let me read this. He says it a lot better than I can. Satan makes us think that our salvation depends on our spiritual experiences, our holiness, or our works. He tries to confuse the true relationship between faith and works, as well as gospel and law. If he can begin to mangle that up, he's got a foothold in our lives. A 19th century believer rather quaintly explained his experience like this. Listen to this. I thought I must obey the law and went to Moses to make terms with him. And he at once knocked me down. That is, Moses knocked him down. I knew I deserved it, and I did not complain. I prepared myself and went again. And with a severe blow, Moses brought me to the ground a second time. I was amazed and entreated him to hear me. But he drove me from Sinai and gave me no satisfaction. In my despair, I went to Calvary. You see what happens when we fall down in sin. We try to become a better Christian. And so we go to Mount Sinai to be a better law keeper. Praise God that Moses Moses knocked him down every time. Get off of this mountain. 
go to Calvary. But he drove me from Mount Sinai and gave me no satisfaction. In my despair, I went to Calvary. There I found one who had pity on me, forgave my sins and filled my heart with his love. I looked at him and his healing mercy penetrated my whole being and cured the malady within. Now I went back to Moses to tell him what had happened. He smiled on me, shook my hand and greeted me most lovingly. And he has never knocked me down since. I go by way of Calvary to Sinai. And all its thunders are silent. Isn't that beautiful? You see, when we fall, or when temptation comes our way and we fall, Satan doesn't stop there. He continues to fire the arrows of doubt. He wants to bury you. He wants to ruin you. He wants to incapacitate us so that we're of no good to God. And one of the ways, I think primary ways he does it, is by getting us to think that i got to be a better this, a better that. i got to be a better Christian. i got to be a better law. i got to be better at obeying. And so what do we naturally do? We try to get up and go to Sinai real quick and try to keep the law a little bit better this week or next week. Whereas the Christian life doesn't get up to go to Sinai. It goes to Calvary first. And then it'll go back to Sinai. For some reason, we're tempted to bypass Calvary on the way to Sinai. That's exactly where Satan wants you. Don't go there. Here's the point. Go to Calvary first. Go to Calvary first. Even as believers, we always go to Calvary first. We dust ourselves off. We get up and go to the foot of the cross. Amen. We got to live there. We got to get up there every morning. When we put our heads on our pillow at night, we go to sleep there. It's a place where we live. I just thought that was so beautiful. Here's how Satan bruises us. Six things, real quick. He brings blasphemous thoughts your way through a movie, a television, a secular book. He wants to put it into your mind, and after such thoughts, he whispers that you cannot be a child of God. He's appealing to the flesh within, isn't he? Number two, Satan gets you to question the truths of God. Better yet, question the promises of God, the mercy of God, the one who has never treated you ill or poorly. Then he goes again and he argues with you, tricks you into thinking that no child of God could be like you. There's not another one like you. There's no one that messes up like you. You're alone in this area. Well, that's a lie. Why would he think he'd want you to think that way? To isolate you from other Christians. Right? When he isolates the believer, he's got a foothold in their life. They are losing the battle. We need each other. We are the body of Christ. And one part of the body cannot operate without the other. That's why God, the Holy Spirit, chose the term body to communicate who we are in Christ. This idea that I don't need the church is from the devil himself. It is false. It's not biblical. It's from the enemy. And the purpose of that is to, to ruin you. We need each other. We need Christ in each other. It's a better way of putting it. He then comes at, your, at you, accusing you, leading you into despair. 
or he might come to you as an angel of light leading you to presume upon your faith. Sin's no big deal. It's okay. It's not a bad thing. That too is a trick from the evil one. He presents you, he presents to you the world in fair and beautiful colors. Attempting to move you back into worldly customs, worldly friendships, and worldly vanities. See, he, he, he's so cunning. He comes at us from every direction, doesn't he? He's not satisfied with coming one direction or two, but 10, 20. He, we're like, he likes to treat us like sponges and the liquid of sin and just kind of just soak us with it in one way, shape, or form from some angle to trip us up. That's how evil and cunning and hateful he is to the follower of Christ. He then presses you to indulge in the lust of your flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You know why he knows your weaknesses? He's the master of sin. We're just the subjects. And he knows good and well, he has this little residue of sin left in the believer that he can try to appeal to all the time. Think of it this way. Satan's really not that concerned with unbelievers. He's really not at war with them. They're dead in their sin. They're blind. The spiritual warfare doesn't start until Christ comes into your life. Until you commit to follow him and to be his disciple. Until you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Then the battle begins. So the devil attacks from both fronts. He will, you know, when I fail, he'll attack uh, the sincerity or the genuineness, uh, genuineness of my faith, or he will attack the sincerity and genuineness of God's grace, or both. This brings us to the last piece of armor, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. That's why it's here. And by the way, it's the only offensive weapon. Everything else is defensive. This one is offensive. We go on to attack with the Word of God. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And the offensive weapon we have is the truths of God's word. That's it. It's efficient. It's efficient. Nothing else. And so he immediately describes the sword of the spirit as the word of God. Verse 17. Hebrews 4.12 says, It's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when you pick up the sword, the first thing it's going to do is operate on you. I don't come up, you know, studying every week going, okay, what can I preach to them that they need? That's why I pick a book and we go through it. And then every week I go, oh God, wield it here first. Wield it here first. Some weeks are better than others. I'll be honest with you, okay? But I don't equip you so to wield it on you, but so that you can wield it on yourself. Right? We are not each other's Holy Spirit in that regard. Think of the double-edged sword this way. On one side is the law. The commands of Scripture tells us to obey. It does the initial cut. You see, there's, there's, say there's a cancer inside. There's sin. And I need to get to it. And as a spiritual surgeon, is the analogy going on here, I need to make that initial cut. To get inside. Well, that's the law. It exposes where I fall short. And once you get in there, 
you see it, and you turn the sword around, the other side of the sword is the gospel. It's through the gospel that you ask God to begin to uproot that sin for my life. It's a two-edged sword. It, it hurts at first, but the whole point is that it heals. Amen? That's the point. But like if we use it as a dull blade, it's going to mangle. It's going to make a bigger mess out of what's going on in my life, right? That's why we accurately handle the word of truth. So we, we got to know how to use, like, like a surgeon needs to know how to, uh, needs to, know how to uh, use the scalpel. We've got to know how to use accurately the word of God so that we can wield it like a successful surgeon on ourselves first and foremost. Because we know that through the word of God, we will be healed. The Lord will deal with our sin, bring us back into fellowship, and it's sweet. But we live in a day, I'm going to close with this. We live in a day and age, that, that's it. It's really, I, you know, I, don't, I can't expound more and more on this. I could, but I don't think it would be appropriate. I, there's so much there, but yet it's really quite simple. Okay? These six pieces of armor we're going to talk about, I think the seventh prayer coming up next week. But I want to close this section with these six pieces of armor by talking about, uh, real quick, uh, one of the greatest problems today we face. And notice what Paul says. He gives us the sword of the Spirit. God gives us the sword of the Spirit, which is the objective truths of Scripture. But listen to me. Please listen to me. If you get nothing else, pay attention. Today we live in an age where people are relying on subjective experiences to validate their faith or to validate God's grace. And that is a trick of the evil one. It's the Word of God. I'm not saying we don't experience things. We don't experience good times with God. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we do not rely on them. We rely on the Word of God. The biggest illustration I can give you of this today is the charismatic movement. I'm not, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pull punches. And matter of fact, Jonathan Edwards saw this in the First Great Awakening. He wrote this, there are many false spirits exceedingly busy with men who often transform themselves as angels of light and do in many ways with great subtlety and power mimic the operations of the Holy Spirit of God. One of the greatest deceptions in our day and age is how Satan, the devil, counterfeits the work of the Holy Spirit. Many Pentecostals and Charismatics and I'm not questioning their salvation necessarily. What I'm saying, they fall into this trap. They fall into this trap. Satan knows, listen to this, Satan knows the inclinations of sinful men. He knows their inclination towards the miraculous. He knows their inclination towards the spectacular, the exceptional, and the extraordinary. And yet we're told to walk by faith and not by sight. And faith has an object. The Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Thus saith Romans 10, 17. People look for signs and wonders. What was the problem back in Jesus' day? What was the, well, the problem with the apostles? You see this also in the book of Acts. Let's back up to Jesus. Why did they follow Him? 
for signs and wonders, and they could never get enough. You want more, you want more, you want more. The flesh is never satisfied. And, and, and that's not the object of one's faith. The object of our faith is a person. It is Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, his perfect life, which the Holy Scriptures point to from beginning to end. As a matter of fact, in the same book we've been in for months, it says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but our fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That means the apostles and prophets built a foundation called what? The Word of God. And then it says this, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He is the one that holds the Bible together. So no matter where we're at, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation, we find Christ. Because he's the cornerstone. But Satan would love for us to be in the Word and not end up with Christ. Thus, there's many today that will cry out promises of healing. Or if you just have enough faith, God will heal you. If you give enough money, God will bless you. Show me in Scripture, I beg, I plead. Nowhere to be found. They present the false notion that God's work what God does is based upon how much faith we have. That is a man-centered gospel. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is the devil's scheme. Making God dependent upon man. Making man the center of the gospel. His Satan's trickery. His scheming and his ploy to get us off of Christ. It's a deviation away from the true knowledge of God. It runs rampant today in the charismatic and Pentecostal circles. It does. And I would be a bad pastor, a poor pastor, if now and then I did not point it out to you. But I had to. Because we're in a day and age where it's prevalent. It's all over the place. The devil is alive and real, folks. But we are to stand firm. We have a Savior who has defeated him. We are to take up the armor. And to stand firm against his schemes. And we got to know that he's around about trying to devour us using circumstances in our lives, using other people in our lives to, to tempt us to make us fall. Use, he'll use a television. He'll use a radio. He'll use a laptop. He'll use a cell phone. He'll use whatever it'll take because he hates Christ. He hates the body of Christ. Let us take up the full armor as we study this morning and be found faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for God, Holy Spirit, moving Paul to write this down for us so that we would not be ignorant in 2018, so that we as a church could be united and strong in the truth. Lord God, we want to be honest and sincere with, with who we are, without Christ, who we are in Christ, that we are sinners, yet saved by grace. And Lord God, we want to put on that, 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 we want to walk in obedience and put on that breastplate of righteousness. God, we want to shod our feet with the gospel of peace and, and be at peace and fellowship with one another. And Lord God, when we see the enemy coming over the hill, we want to pick up the helmet of salvation because we know he's wanting a death blow on our heads. But we stand firm in the gospel of Christ. 
We stand on what he has done. And oh God, we pick up the shield of faith because we know the enemy's coming over that hill and he's going to be throwing darts at us because he knows we mess up. He knows we fail. And he wants to create doubts in our minds. He wants us to doubt your word. He wants us to doubt your grace. And oh God, that's why you've given us the sword of the Spirit. It is the truth about you. It tells us the truth about ourselves and the truth about the Savior's love for us. It is all that we have to fight off those fiery darts. It's where we get our discernment. It is our very lifeline, oh God. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.